What is up? And welcome back to Beyond the Arc with Brandon Silvers. As always, I am your host, Brandon Silvers. Hope you have been well. No time to waste. Let's get into it. Since beating the Indiana Pacers to win the first ever NBA in-season tournament, the Los Angeles Lakers have been very bad. They've lost to good teams. They've lost to bad teams. They've blown leads. They've lost close games. They've been blown out. They've put on a master class in losing. They were very bad last year through this many games, and they are only slightly ahead of that pace this season, and it wasn't supposed to be like this. It was supposed to be different. After last year's slow start, they made some midseason trades, and they figured out something with the roster that saw them turn things around enough to make a run all the way to the Western Conference Finals. They seem primed to build on that this year. They brought back most of the pieces from that run. They added a couple more on top of that, and LeBron had an entire offseason to bounce back from whatever was going on with his foot that had him looking a little bit more human than usual. A top four seed seemed like a guarantee. Yet here we are. Despite everything I just said, and including some stuff I didn't, like quite possibly the healthiest Anthony Davis NBA season in his career, the Lakers are once again a disappointment. Which means it's time to fire up the Darvin Ham hot seat. The Athletic reported that six sources questioned his standing within the organization. That's such a specific amount of sources mentioned that I have to believe he's in some kind of trouble. And he should be. He seems to have no rhyme or reason for his rotations, which causes players to be out of rhythm. He'll sit guys who are hot and he'll play guys who are cold. I couldn't tell you this team's identity, and that's not something you should be able to say about a team whose two best players are Anthony Davis and LeBron James. LeBron seems particularly fed up to the point where he's being snippy with the media, which is rare for him. That's incredible considering how long he's been in the public spotlight. Now, what's not rare for him is to be on a team that's on the hunt for a new coach. Coaches are hired to be fired. That's the name of the game in all sports. Trust me, I'm a Carolina Panthers fan. According to an article by Doug Robinson of the Deseret last May, the average NBA coaching tenure is three to four years. A study from just a few years earlier by Kip Wright shows that out of the four major professional men's sports in this country, NBA coaches actually have the shortest average tenure. My theory on that is that no star player has more power than an NBA star, and there is no star more powerful than LeBron James. What sets LeBron apart from the rest of his all-time great counterparts is that when you think of his career, you don't think of a singular iconic coach. If I say Michael Shaq or Kobe, you think Phil Jackson. Hakeem, you think Rudy T, who is underrated because he had to retire early for health reasons. Tim Duncan, you think Popovich. Steph Curry, you think Steve Kerr, although he might be in trouble here soon, but still... That's not to say these guys didn't get coaches fired or clash with them, but it's weird that LeBron doesn't have an iconic coach and he's had so many get fired. But how many of his coaches truly deserve to be fired? Is LeBron James a coach killer? To answer that, let's take a look at all of LeBron James's coaches starting with his rookie season with the Cavs. The year is 2003. Lanisha Cole is in the music video for Pharrell's Frontin'. Featuring Jay-Z wearing a Texas Rangers hat, shout out to Danny Foxworth, two decades away from having Nick Cannon's baby and the Rangers winning a World Series. That has nothing to do with this, but I couldn't not bring her up. 
Anyways, the Cleveland Cavaliers coach was the late, great Paul Silas. He had just been let go by the Charlotte Hornets, despite the players loving him and having made the playoffs three seasons in a row. They haven't even made the playoffs in back-to-back -back seasons since. Cleveland got the first pick to draft LeBron because they were terrible going 17 and 65 the year before. The only notable roster moves they made were getting rid of the players who you would most certainly not want your young potential megastar learning how to be a professional from. Like Ricky Davis, who once tried to get a triple-double by intentionally missing a shot at the wrong basket and infamously said that he was glad they were bringing in LeBron James to get him some help, which is a stunning lack of self-awareness. This was Ricky's second stint under Silas, and it didn't last long as he got traded in the middle of December of that first LeBron season. Cleveland won 35 games that year, a significant improvement, and they took another leap the following season and were 21-12 and in the number two seed in the East after a win on my 16th birthday, which is January 11th for those of you keeping score at home, and I'm accepting gifts all month long. That was the peak for them, unfortunately, because the wheels fell off and the engine dropped out. On March 20th, they lost the game to the Raptors despite LeBron's 56 points, and they were holding on to a playoff spot for dear life, and they decided to fire Paul Silas. What the hell happened? Cavs GM Jim Paxson said at the time, quote, we're 64 games into the season and we still don't have a consistent rotation, substitution patterns, those types of things. Would be very cool of Jim to give Rob Palenka a call and let him know that these are fireable offenses. Jim also criticized Paul's ability as a motivator. Now, I don't know if he was bad at motivating players, but he certainly had an interesting way of doing it. Eric Snow was someone they brought in to be a locker room leader, but Paul got into it with Eric after subbing him out one game for committing an eight second violation like a minute into the game. Eric didn't come to the bench quick enough for Paul's taste and they had words and Paul sent him to the locker room, presumably since that's where he did his best work. If I was making a short list of worst starting point guards I've ever seen, Snow would be near the top. He started all 82 games in the season after Silas was fired. He played 28.7 minutes per game and averaged a whopping 4.8 points and 4.2 assists. He should have been benched for his play and not his attitude, but at least that benching led to one of the most hilarious coaching moments ever. In the post-game press scrum, Silas gets angrier and angrier at the media for trying to ask him about the incident. He keeps telling him he's not going to talk about it. Then finally, he reaches peak exasperation and says, Jesus, am I speaking Chinese? As great of a coach as he was, Paul was the goat of hilarious post-game moments. As a player, he was an enforcer, 6'7", tough as shit, doing the dirty work, ready to fight. Maurice Lucas was the enforcer of all enforcers, and Paul elbowed him in the face and knocked him out at the tip-off of an exhibition game once. And it's not like he got older and mellowed out either. Even years later, when he was coaching the Bobcats, he threw Tyrus Thomas in a locker during an argument when he was 68 and Tyrus was 25. Paul was a true fuck-around-and-find-out all-star. Cavs player Ira Newble found out himself when he confronted Silas after a game in Atlanta. Ira had bought a bunch of tickets for family and friends since he had lived there for a couple years. Then he didn't play a lot because he just wasn't a great NBA player. He was embarrassed and mad that he had all these people come to watch him play and he just sat on the bench, so he went to let Paul know. Brian Windhorst has told the story a million times, but he heard a ton of commotion and Ira came running out the locker room half-dressed looking like he'd gone through hell and Silas comes out chasing after him yelling, get back here you hip-hop motherfucker, I'm not done with you. 
It is at this time I'd like to announce that I am hiring someone to do Paul Silas impersonations. So if interested, please email me ASAP. Contrary to what Jim said, this sounds like someone who is very good at a very specific form of motivation. Nonetheless, he was fired and the Cavs ended up missing the playoffs anyways, but was it LeBron's fault that he got fired? No. Silas was a great coach who did what he was supposed to do with LeBron and that awful roster. He was fired early, but the organization was probably just scared he'd end up killing Drew Gooden. And even with all that, the players still loved him, even Nubel. Years later, Nubel acknowledged he'd been wrong in that incident, and they actually developed a bond after meeting to discuss it, and he treasured his time playing for Paul. He was devastated when he heard that he had died. Most importantly, numerous players on that Cavs team talked about how much LeBron respected Paul Silas. LeBron himself called Silas one of the greatest human beings he's ever been around. I can't imagine Silas's firing had anything to do with LeBron. The next LeBron coach was current Kings head coach Mike Brown. It's wild to think about now, but he was the second youngest coach in the NBA when he was hired, and it was his first head coaching job. In five seasons under Brown, the Cavs took that next step it looked like they were going to take under Silas on my 16th birthday. They averaged 54 wins a year and made it to at least the second round of the playoffs every year, including an Eastern Conference Finals appearance and an NBA Finals appearance. That's a lot of success, but as you know, since you're not 16 right now, no NBA championships. And because of that, Mike Brown became the first coach that LeBron James got fired indirectly. So what happened? Well, it starts that second season under Brown where they made it to the NBA Finals. It felt like this watching it live, but looking back at the roster confirms it. LeBron carried a trash heap to the Finals. In the playoffs, the second leading scorer was Zadrunas Ilgaskis. He averaged 12.6 points per game. Other key contributors were Larry Hughes, Drew Gooden, Sasha Pavlovich, and Keisha Cole's ex-husband, Daniel Booby Gibson. I just don't know what you do with that, but LeBron found a way. This was the year he had that insane 48-point performance in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Pistons, where he scored like 29 of Cleveland's final 30 points. He dragged this sorry team to the finals to face off against the San Antonio Spurs, who had future Hall of Famers Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili, Tony Parker, and one of the greatest coaches ever in the aforementioned Greg Popovich. Their role players probably would have started for Cleveland. Guys like Robert Ory, Bruce Bowen, Michael Finley. They were infinitely more talented and they knew how to exploit LeBron's biggest weakness. For all his greatness, LeBron has never been a great shooter. He's a much improved shooter and he has spells where he's a very good shooter now, but he's never been consistent except for his early years when he was consistently bad. We all knew this, nobody better than the Spurs, so they sagged off him defensively to protect against his nearly unstoppable drives, and they dared him to shoot jumpers. In the sweep, LeBron shot just 36% from the field, including a very depressing 4 for 20 from 3. On top of that, he also averaged 6 turnovers per game. These weaknesses, lack of talent on the roster and James's jumper, were the story for the entire Mike Brown era. Even as they were able to figure out how to win in the regular season where they had a 66-win season and a 61-win season, things fell apart in the playoffs where even the best offenses get jammed up.
In the regular season, teams are flying around the country, playing back-to-backs, scouting for this opponent and that opponent. In the playoffs, it's one opponent, it's more physical, a team whose star thrives in space like the Cavs and LeBron find that there isn't as much space. Things that were fouls in the regular season aren't fouls now, everything just gets bogged down. Teams learn your weaknesses and they force you to use those weaknesses. We've seen it with a ton of great regular season teams. Maybe LeBron's jumper doesn't matter if they get him some help, but they never really did. They brought in Mo Williams, who was okay, but probably not a number two option on a title team. They brought in old ass Antoine Jameson and an even older ass Shaq. They said they were gonna trade JJ Hickson for Amari Stoudemire. As you can see, none of this has to do with Mike Brown directly. And while he had his flaws and has certainly improved as a coach in the years since, I believe they could have won with him if they just had a slightly younger, better roster, but they didn't. They lost in the 2010 second round to the Celtics, a team with all the talent Cleveland didn't have and had no roster solutions in their plans, only roster problems, including a big one, LeBron James was about to become a free agent, so what'd they do? They fired Mike Brown in the hopes they could convince LeBron to stay and play for another coach a coach he respected. Now, an overarching theme of the Mike Brown era outside of the playoff flameouts and bad rosters was the very public opinion that LeBron was actually running the show and didn't look at Brown as an authority figure. Again, Brown was young. This was his first head coaching job and he's coaching the league's best young star. He's not calling anybody a hip-hop motherfucker. He's there to keep LeBron happy and stay out the way. I was reading an article from Slam about their relationship dynamic back then, and it was detailing this supposed huge shift in their relationship dynamic because Brown finally got in LeBron's face and challenged him to play harder and better for the first time in his tenure. This dramatic event of Mike Brown finally becoming brave enough to coach LeBron took place at the end of the regular season of Brown's fifth and final year. Guess what, buddy? If you wait five years to get respect, you missed your chance. To Brown's credit, his current team talks about how he's constantly getting in their faces and challenging them, so he's certainly improved in that area, but he was about a decade and a half late on when he should have done it with LeBron. The Cavs knew this, offered to bring in a guy LeBron respected since they couldn't put together a roster to save their lives, and LeBron took his talents to South Beach to play for Eric Spolstra. With the benefit of hindsight, this is the iconic coach we should associate with LeBron's career. He's one of the best coaches in the league today, just got a huge contract extension, the best coach LeBron has had in his entire career, and LeBron won two of his four rings playing for Spo. But instead of thinking of him as LeBron's Phil Jackson, he takes his place in LeBron's story as the first coach LeBron tried to get fired. Where the Mike Brown firing was a result of the Cavs organization thinking that's what LeBron wanted, the Heat didn't have to wonder because LeBron went straight to him and was like, make this happen. I was a LeBron hater until he joined the Lakers for all the reasons someone would hate LeBron at the time, the number one being that I was a Kobe fan. So when he left the Cavs to create the big three in Miami, I, as a hater, was incredibly concerned about the whole ordeal. The last thing I wanted was him to succeed. So imagine my joy, my unrestrained glee, when the Heat started out that first season looking mediocre and everyone looking frustrated as hell. 
It all came to a head during a loss on November 27th against Dallas when LeBron infamously bumped Spo on the way back to the huddle. It's funny to look back on this incident because the way it was reported, you would have thought LeBron slapped him directly in his teeth. And we know that now, while he's not Paul Silas, Spo's down for a rumble himself as he's had to be held back from going after Jimmy Butler. But LeBron James, NBA superstar, best player on the team that was supposed to be the best in the NBA, intentionally ran into his coach on the way to the huddle. So that was news, if for no other reason than it was so out of character for him. The Heat lost that game to fall to 9-8, and eight, and LeBron went to Heat President Pat Riley to get him to fire Spo and come down and coach the team himself. Which is funny because there's probably no Pat Riley to go to if Magic Johnson hadn't himself uncharacteristically gone to Dr. Jerry Buss to get his coach at the time, Paul Westhead, fired and Riley named head coach of the Showtime Lakers. The thing about LeBron that makes him different than Jordan and Kobe is that LeBron actually wants to be liked. Looking back, he probably would have tried to get Mike Brown fired the same way, except there's smoke that comes along with that. What changed is that for the first time in his career, the majority of NBA fans didn't like him. Great players always have haters, like me, but it's more of a 50-50 ratio of haters to fans or indifferent basketball watchers. Simply by virtue of the way he left Cleveland and handled the decision, LeBron was hated on by most non-Miami Heat fans. He would have been hard-pressed to be hated on even more, so there was no real reputational risk to getting a coach fired. Especially when you think that winning might shift that hater ratio in a positive direction and you believe this coach is standing in the way of that. Riley, however, told LeBron no, and that was the right thing to do apparently because the Heat won 21 of their next 22 games, much to my dismay. I'm no longer a LeBron hater, so I won't talk about what happened in that year's finals when they faced off against the Mavericks again. LeBron's time with the Heat is the most important part of his legacy. He won his first NBA title, he improved his jumper, he made the leap to undisputed best player in the league, and most importantly, he moved past whatever hangups he had about exerting all the power he had accumulated as a result of everything I just mentioned. This came in handy when he went back to Cleveland to play for David Blatt, a man who had a ton of success in Europe but was a rookie NBA head coach. It's important to note that when the Cavs hired Blatt, they thought he'd be leading a young team of Kyrie Irving, Deion Waiters, the previous year's number one pick, Anthony Bennett, and that year's number one pick, Andrew Wiggins. Everything changed when LeBron announced he was coming back, and now Blatt, instead of guiding a young team, trying to find its way where he could also learn the intricacies of being an NBA head coach, was coaching the title contender with the league's best player. He was also trying to figure out how to make Kyrie and a newly acquired Kevin Love fit with LeBron, which would be tricky for any head coach, much less one in his first NBA season. As a result, they were inconsistent to say the least, a four-game losing streak followed by an eight-game winning streak, a stretch where they lost 10 of 12 followed by winning 12 straight. But despite having Tristan Thompson and Kendrick Perkins on the roster, they still had plenty of talent, including the most talented player in the league, so they were able to overcome everything and make the NBA Finals. Unfortunately, they didn't have plenty of talent by the time they got there because Kevin Love was hurt and Kyrie got hurt in Game 1, so they lost to the Warriors in six games despite a masterclass LeBron performance. You could easily see where this was a championship team heading into next season if things stayed the course. On paper, they did for the Cavs as a team. They were 30-11, and 11, best record in the East. 
But other teams had gotten better. The Warriors were 39 and 4 on their way to their infamous league record of 73 wins. The Spurs were 37 and 6. Cleveland looked as disjointed as a number one seed could look and headed for another finals loss. The team hadn't bought into Blatt as a coach or a leader, so he was fired in spite of their record, and Ty Lue, his lead assistant, was named head coach. We didn't know it at the time because he was still the guy who AI stepped over, but Ty is the second best coach LeBron has ever had. One of the reasons is like a Paul Silas or Eric Spolstra, he wasn't afraid to challenge players, including LeBron himself. We all saw the Cavs come back from down three games to one to upset the Warriors, but a big turning point in that series was Ty Lue directly challenging LeBron, telling him that it was his fault they weren't winning and he needed to play better. We know how that ended, and that really seems to be the way to deal with LeBron. If you're a pushover, he'll run right over you. He doesn't respect it. Challenge him directly and he'll respond. That's a common thread among all-time greats. And it's also a trait of all-time great coaches. You have to be able to command respect and challenge players to do better. You can be the greatest X's and O's coach ever, but if players don't listen to you, it's useless. That was the only title they won because Golden State went out and got Kevin Durant, but Lou was the coach the whole time until LeBron left to go play for the Lakers and coach Luke Walton. Tell me if you've heard this before, but LeBron's first year got off to a slow start. Ty Lue actually explained why this happens in an interview a couple years ago. LeBron can do so much that it takes a long time to figure out how many different ways to use him and how all those different ways affect how you use the other players if you ever do happen to figure it out. Luke Walton did not, so he was gone after that first season after they won just 37 games. How can I be so sure it was Luke's fault? Well, he was just as bad at his next stop in Sacramento. Also, the very next year after replacing him with Frank Vogel, the Lakers won the NBA championship. Now, they also added Anthony Davis in the end of that regular season and the playoffs were played in the bubble. But still, I have seen absolutely no evidence that would lead me to believe that Luke Walton is a competent NBA head coach. So let's talk about LeBron's last head coach before him, the aforementioned Vogel. He had a solid run with the Lakers and a not so solid run with the Magic before heading to LA. And like I said, he led them to the bubble ring, but also got fired two seasons later after missing the playoffs. But was it LeBron's fault? My initial thought was no, but we actually got a little bit of extra insight here recently that's made me reconsider and change that to an indirectly like our good friend Mike Brown. A report just came out that Vogel was fired for failing to successfully integrate Russell Westbrook. See, LeBron James isn't necessarily a coach killer, at least not intentionally. The one time he tried, he was told no, and rightfully so, because that would have been the wrong move. I'm not sure how hard he's lobbying for input on coaches, but it does look like organizations aren't listening to him either way. Where they do listen to him, even though he's proven time and time again that you probably shouldn't, is when it comes to roster moves. The Westbrook trade is a perfect example of that. Even at Russ's peak, it seemed pretty clear that he wouldn't age gracefully. He's a guy who needs the ball. His athleticism played a huge role in his success, never was a particularly reliable shooter, and never displayed the self-awareness that would allow him to overcome all of what I just mentioned. Why LeBron thought he would still be able to come in and be a key piece on a title contender is still something I can't wrap my head around. I also can't understand why the Lakers would listen to him. One of LeBron's most talked about strengths is his ability to make other players better. However, while I agree that's true, it's only true for certain types of players. 
If you're a catch and shoot guy who doesn't need a ton of shots, playing with LeBron is going to take your game to the next level. Think Mike Miller, Shane Battier, Ray Allen, hell, even Damon Jones. The way LeBron's game works is he's going to force the defense to help and he has the court vision and passing ability to hit you right where you want the ball. All you have to do is knock down two out of every five open threes. Boom, easy, I could do that right now. The other player who thrives alongside LeBron is the guy who's on the cusp of being a number one and number two option, the Anthony Davises, the Kyries, the Dwayne Wades, who was flat out a number one option, who sank down to a number two beside LeBron. That works because the defense has to focus on LeBron because he's the all-time leading scorer, but he's unselfish enough to where the number two guy is still going to get number one guy touches. Again, I love Kobe and Michael Jordan, and they were underrated as passers, but if you were their number two option, you were gonna feel it. There weren't too many nights when Powell or Scottie Pippen had more shot attempts than those two. That's not LeBron's style though, so you don't really feel restricted in your offensive game as his number two option. On the other hand, the players who have struggled over and over again beside LeBron are the number three guys on offense, especially if they're former number one options. They go from being someone who has the comfort of knowing, okay, if I need to find a rhythm, I can just clear out whenever I want and get myself a shot until I'm rolling, to a player wondering when their next shot is gonna come. Because remember, it's not just that LeBron has to get his shots first, but then so does D Wade or Kyrie or AD. So now you just gotta get in where you fit in. We saw how this went with Chris Bosh and Kevin Love. They were both open about how tough it was to adjust their games. LeBron was out here subtweeting Kevin Love at one point because he was so bad. And those were two guys who were in the prime of their careers. So why anybody thought Russell Westbrook, who was on the decline and less of a fit than those other guys, would be able to make that adjustment is insane to me. Where you had Kobe and MJ superstar arrogance, for a lack of a better term, showing itself in them thinking they could hit any shot, LeBron's comes through in him thinking he can make any guy better, and apparently that goes double for clutch clients. So we have our answer. LeBron isn't a coach killer in the traditional sense of the phrase. He's just a terrible GM who indirectly sets coaches up to get fired by strong arming teams into bringing in players who are terrible fits. And it's important to note that those coaches end up deserving to be fired because truly great coaches can figure out how to make even the worst pieces fit together. Again, the two best coaches LeBron has had, Ty Lue and Eric Spolstra, made it work with that less than ideal third option fit that we just talked about. His lack of an iconic coach has more to do with him being the only megastar to change franchises this many times than the quality of coaches he's had. That's the next most interesting thing to me about his career. He'll go into the Hall of Fame as a Cav, I'm guessing, but just like we don't associate him with any particular head coach, I don't associate him with any particular franchise either, and part of me wonders the effect that's had on his overall legacy. But that's an episode for another day because we've reached the end of this one. This has been another episode of Beyond the Arc with Brandon Silvers. Appreciate you watching, listening, subscribing, rating, reviewing, and sharing. Hope y'all have a fantastic week, and I'll catch you later.